You're listening to The Gateway Church. For more information, please go online to thegatewaychurch.com. Hi. Happy Sunday. Yeah. Well, I'm Kyle. Um, It's likely that you've seen a picture of my little family. Over these past few weeks, you see Jessica, a little griffin, um, and as surreal as it may be, uh, we're actually here. We're like in the flesh, um, and yet maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're going, well, actually, I did not see your picture. Um, I didn't read anything about you online either, um, though fret not, I didn't see your picture, and I didn't read anything about you on the website or anything either, so we are, we're totally even keel. Uh, Either way, uh, whether you've been coming around for weeks or months or years, or if this is your first day here with us, uh, we are really glad. Uh, we've been doing this thing since May. <laughs> it's been a long road. Um, so we, uh, yeah, we are we're glad to be here with you all. Um, but the, the, the truth is, is uh, like we only get to do this once. We only get to share these first words one time. And so it's my heart that the first words that we would share together would be these words that draw us into this beautiful story of hope and life and peace. Words that actually help us to imagine afresh the gospel of Jesus. And perhaps right now when I say the gospel of Jesus, you just rolled your spiritual eyes and you're like, all right, I get to check out for the next 30 minutes because I got the gospel down pat. Uh, I, like, I, I, can, I can understand that sentiment. Like, I, I, can, I can totally get that. Uh, the gospel is a word that is used more like an adjective. Like, we say we want gospel-centered relationships, gospel-centered marriages. We want gospel-saturated. It's, it's anywhere and everywhere. And because it's anywhere and everywhere, it sometimes doesn't really mean too much to us. And in the same breath, there's, there's all of these other false gospels that are around us. They're just in the air we breathe. This is a city, so there's a gospel of finance, a gospel of, of security. Insurance speaks to that. Uh, if you work for insurance companies, blessings on you. Um, but, but, but there's all these stories that are competing and clamoring for our attention and our affections. And there's these promising words that, that offer us this internal peace and this e- eternal hope. There's all of this stuff. All of these stories. And so I just, I find it appropriate, even like the most natural place that we, the church, would find ourselves this morning is to sit afresh in the gospel. That these would actually be the the first words that we share together that would draw us into the presence of Jesus. And if this is weird language, just bear with me uh, for this time and and maybe for the next few years. Uh, So to that end, to be a little bit more specific for my note takers, uh, this is where we're going. So I'm, I'm going to pray. Uh, then we're going to spend some time actually setting the stage with the gospel, how Mark is making sense of it there in our long teaching text. Then we're going to get into our teaching text, and we're going to unpack it phrase by phrase, have some fun there. And then what we'll do is, is at the end, we'll pivot. And in this pivot, we'll, we'll s- like turn the text back on ourselves and see what are the implications uh, for living in light of the gospel. How's that sound? Not rhetorical. How's it? It it sounds good? Okay, cool. Um, So now we pray. Uh, Well, uh, Father, it is uh, is a sobering thing to set in front of us your words of truth and life and hope, and yet for many of us, those feel and sound like odd concepts. 
And so we just pray quite simply, Spirit, would you come? Um, would you fill our hearts? Would you lead us to Jesus as, as Jesus you promised that the Spirit will do? So would you lead us into all truth this morning? Yeah, amen. So if you haven't already, uh, I just want to invite you to turn your Bibles on or you can flip your way over to Mark chapter 1. And there's no, there's no shame in this question here that follows. Uh, how many of you actually have a physical Bible with you? Like two, three of us, four, four, fantastic. Okay, so for those of us, this point is now going to be totally like null and void. Uh, but for those of us who have found our way to Mark 1-1, uh, keep your finger there and then do me a favor and just close, close your Bible. And so since so many of us are turning our Bibles on, I'll just illustrate for us. Uh, so when I close my Bible uh, and then I, and if you have your Bible, open, just open it back up. And what do you see? Once again, not a ritual. This will be a theme. I'm going to ask some questions, and then you can talk back. It makes it way less awkward if you... So, so I open it up. What do you see? An open book, yeah. I have... Here, this is what I would say. I have, like, a table of contents. I have some information about the publisher. Uh, maybe your Bible at the front has some maps, because we've all forgotten what the world looks like because of the tiny computers in our pockets. Uh, there's a bunch of, this is my point, there's a bunch of paper, there's a bunch of stuff before we actually get to Genesis 1-1, which is where the Bible starts. And here's, here's what I'm getting at. This, this would be madness if, if you were Mark. See, in, in Mark's world, paper would be this rare commodity. It's not like us where we have trees all around, they're planting them all the time, they're knocking them down, and they're making paper and paper products. I mean, we have so much paper, we're literally throwing it in the toilet. So we, here Mark would say, no, no, paper is this product that's harvested from the papyrus reeds on a river far away, and they get the pulp from the inside, they press it, they dry it out. And so if you're Mark, and, and you're going to be writing a letter, you're going to be composing a letter to keep the story of Jesus alive to these second generation of Christians in the 70s AD. They're Greek, they're living in this Roman world. What you have to do is you have to make every page, every paragraph, every word, every sentence, like every, it all has to count. So there's none of this extra stuff. And so what you would do is you would start out with this little thing called an insipid. An insipid is just Latin for it begins. And in essence, it's this summary statement that sets before an audience all that's to follow. And so as we sit here this morning with Mark 1-1 open in front of us, we sit with a verse, Mark's insipid, it's just chock full of all that is set to be unleashed in the next 16 chapters. And what's beautiful about this, this like seven words in the Greek and 12 words in English, what's beautiful about this little verse is it's not just an invitation into the gospel according to Mark. It's an invitation to set ourselves in front of the God of the gospel, namely Jesus. And so if, if you haven't found your way there yet, I think that was ample time to get to this. Uh, this is what we read again in Mark 1.1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And now it may be that uh, if you grew up in this thing we call churchianity, um, that you hear this verse or you see this verse and it really just feels like a throwaway line, either because you've heard it so many times, you've read through the gospel of Mark, or 
or perhaps uh, the, the phrases that are in this verse, they just feel so familiar that you're like, all right, now I just need to read this to get on with the rest of it. And, and if, this is, if this is true, which it very well may be that for many of us in the room this morning, this is not like a hypothetical scenario in a sermon. This is real life in this season where you open up the word of God and it, you don't know where God is at in it. It feels more vacant than life-giving, and so you, you, you sit with this thing open, but it doesn't feel open to you. It's not a place of peace and life and hope. It's a place of frustration and angst. And I just, I just want to lean in there because I don't know the stories that you all are bringing here. I don't know like, what the cumulative weight of your frustration may be. Uh, but this place, these people, this ought to be the place where we can bring all of our stuff like we're, we can actually let loose the grips of fear and angst and frustration here in this community. And I would hope that this would be what many today are calling a safe place, but it would be more than just a safe place. The sad thing is, though, is that the church is, uh, is sometimes the place where those wounds are inflicted on us. And so wherever you're at, I think um, that, that you should know this, that Mark has you right where he wants you. And I think that this morning, I think that the Spirit of God actually has you right where he wants you to sit you afresh in the presence of Jesus. And so to that end, here's a little thought experiment. Once again, I'm going to say something. It's a question. You can respond. What is the gospel? Like, how would you define it? Just shout it out. Good news. Cool. The truth. Good news about what or who? Jesus, here's a, if you say Jesus, we're not going to like say, no, wrong. So safe, safe response. Jesus is a cool response here. Yeah, okay, so let's, um, let's lean in here a little bit more because Mark, he's making a gospel claim in this one little verse. And if we would allow Mark, he might offer us some encouragement, some correction this morning. Uh, but to lean in a little bit more, we have this word gospel, which is, a, like I said, it just gets thrown around. Uh, but this is a word that we get from the Old English, and it's just two words smushed together. You have got and spell, good and tidings, or good news, and there's nothing really original happening in the Old English here. Uh, in fact, the same thing is happening in, in the Greek, which is what the New Testament was originally written in. It's the language that Mark is writing his letter in, and it's this Greek word, euangelion. So say this with me, euangelion. Evangelion. Greek scholars, every one of you. So this, this Greek, it's actually, this is another compound word, just two words squished together. You have ou and angelos, good message or messenger or good tiding. It's, if you ever have heard the word um, evangelize, it's working on the same root there. And this, I think this is important to note that the gospel is news. So let's just, I just... As an aside, the significance of the gospel being news is that news is an event. So today I think this is lost on us, especially with an election cycle coming up. We, like, we're just bombarded with messaging 24-7, 365. And so we forget that news is this significant event that fundamentally shifts how we see and live in the world. And then in light of that shift, it opens up this whole new realm of possibilities. 
And this is the sort of news that Mark is interested in inviting us into. This is what he's saying. I'm going to sit you in front of this type of news that fundamentally shifts how you see and live and and work into the world. And and there's actually more going on here because contrary to what we may think, when, when an euangelion went out, when a gospel would go out, it didn't go out with these exclusively religious overtones. In fact, it was this it was this densely packed political statement. And as, as such, what you would see is these euangelions would go out and they would go out in the Roman Empire. And so I think this is the first century. This is 2,000 years ago. Rome is the super, they are the America of the world. And so they are the superpower and they would be, uh, like a new emperor would come up and an announcement of good news would go out to the edge of the empire or a battle, a skirmish would come up And there would be an announcement of the verdict of that battle that would go out. And so this is the context within which Mark places this good news. How are we doing? Good? So we just have to imagine that with an an announcement like this, with a good news like this, that there is all of this anticipation, all of this hope, all of these frustrations, all of these concerns bound up in it because... When there would be a battle going on on the edge of the empire and they would be trying to keep the peace, well, the way that Rome kept the peace was at the edge of a sword. So you were either at peace with Rome or you were dead to Rome. And so when they would be at the edge of the, like, you think it's the able-bodied men who would go to keep the peace. And so what you would have back at home is you would have the elderly, the women, the children. And so that's, these are not just, these men are not just weapons of war. They're also people of productivity. These, these are agricultural-driven societies. So when they go away, they're like, where's our livelihood gone? So there's all of this angst. People would wait with bated breath for the good news to come, for the verdict of what would happen on this war. And, and we actually have some of these euangelions, like people dig in the dirt and find these, I don't know, pieces of stone where people etched in these. And this is an euangelion from, from Mark's day. And this is what it would sound like. I think this is up behind us. Boom. Since he, Caesar, by his appearance, excelled even our anticipations, surpassing all previous benefactors and not even leaving to posterity or uh, future generations, any hope of surpassing what he has done. And since the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good tidings for the world that came by reason of him, which Asia resolved and smeared in this inscription goes on. Now that is weird this was a new Angelion. This was an announcement that shifted the landscape for the people to whom it went. It redefined the status quo. And in this case, it's, it's a birthday card for Caesar Augustus, which I think is kind of funny. Uh, but this birthday card is Caesar Augustus saying, I want my birthday to be the hinge for the new year. So he shifts the new year three days to make his birthday the hinge upon which the new year swings. And as such, the whole calendar system is reoriented. And this may sound odd to us. If it sounds perfectly normal to you, let's talk afterwards. I want to know how and why. Uh, but, But this birthday card for Caesar, it not only clues us into the context of Mark's readers and, and how they might experience these announcements of good news, these euangelions, but it, but it also, it, it should draw our attention back to this one little verse, to our teaching texts, to Mark's insipid. So just look again, Mark chapter 1, verse 1. You will have this verse memorized by today, so that is my gift to you. 
So the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Do, do you see it? Do you hear it? Look at, okay, look, just look again, if not, at, at Caesar's inscription in this highlighted section here. And since the birthday of the God Augustus was the beginning of the good tidings for the world. Now do you see it? Mark's use of euangelion here is hauntingly similar to what people in that time and place would have heard. Mark takes this existing formula in the Roman Empire and then he just infuses it with all this new meaning and he does it in this upside down way. He puts Jesus into the Caesar slot, which is like a no-no. You just don't do that. But he just done did it. He, he just did it. This is cultural appropriation of a totally different kind. It's, apparently Mark is up to something. He's up to something like sneaky and subversive and, and scandalous even in his gospel. In other words, lurking just beneath the surface of Rome's announcement of peace and prosperity is something more true, something more sure, something wider and deeper. And it's, it's the name of Jesus. And Mark is calling our attention to that. He's saying, get ready. Are you, are you ready for this? Are you ready for a new type of gospel? And this gospel here, it's not just some like incantation that we speak over our lives to protect us from hellfire. This is an announcement that it says that God's rule and reign is breaking in to the world in Jesus. Once again, this is super weird. Because if we were to find the gospel in our own terms and framework, this is not what we would come up with. This is an otherworldly, this is like invasion language. Mark is infusing this with all sorts of new meanings. And so it, it, this bumps up against how we receive gospel, some of our common conceptions. And so I, like I needed help getting my mind around this. I still need help getting my mind around this. But there's a dude way smarter than me. His name's David Garland. And this is how he says it. Gospel refers to the story about Jesus narrated in the text. It comprises Jesus' words, his deeds, his death, and resurrection as God's direct intervention into human history. And so if you don't see this, it's the whole thing. The, the gospel is the whole thing. Chapters 1 through 16, that's the gospel, but it, but it goes on. It, the gospel, challenges an imperial cult propaganda that promotes a message of good tidings and a new age of peace through a Roman emperor. So I, I know it's been a while since Mark wrote his letter, uh, but are you beginning to feel the weight of this at, at all? Is this, is this like doing anything to your heart, to your mind, to your spirit? Like Mark is saying, wake up. What you think the gospel is, is deeper, it's wider, it's more true. Wake up. But do you think that your colleagues would like recognize this as the gospel? In, in all sincerity, do you, would they have any, any, if you started talking in this way, just picture this scenario. So you, you go into work tomorrow and you punch in or you're getting together at your desk, you're getting some coffee, whatever, however you do your Monday morning. And then your, your, like your coworker comes up to you and they ask the typical Monday questions, so what'd you do this weekend? To which you respond, uh, well, it was a scandalous weekend. Um, 
<laughs> you have no idea. I was, I was scandalized by, by the gospel of Jesus. Like, you know how he's challenging the Roman imperial cult in the first century? Oh my goodness, like, it, it. and now, now I feel this fundamental shift in my life to live and love differently. It's just, I don't know, scandalous is the only word I can come to mind, but yeah, how was your weekend? This, 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 you know why this conversation never happens? I don't. I'm like, I'm asking you. It's, this is how these conversations generally go. How was your weekend? It was good. Okay, see ya. Like, that's, that's, the, that's the level of communication we have, so maybe that's the problem, but I'm not going to chase that rabbit. It's at a moment like this in the late modern West, which is like, the, this is the cultural moment we find ourselves in. I don't think, now I could totally be wrong here, but I don't think that Jesus is a true name of hope. I don't think he's a name of life. I don't think he's a name of peace. And I actually think that his good news has been recast as your no good news. And perhaps that's how you feel about the gospel this morning, but... The gospel is a subversive, which means it's just under the surface. It's, it's flipping up what you know to be true. It's a subversive declaration that God has become king in Jesus. And he's now beckoning. He's calling to any and all who would come to him that life is actually possible. But you're saying, Kyle, I'm actually living quite well. I'm, uh, well, did you know I live in North Grand and uh, I'm doing a remodel on my house right now. Okay, Jesus is saying there's more to be had. There's more to be had. And Mark is inviting us to see this as true. But because the gospel has been recast as this strange thing at best, an offensive thing at worst, like I feel stuck in what it actually looks like to live in light of this. And it's startling how quickly this caricature of the gospel of Jesus, it begins to sanitize whole books of the script, like it just sanitizes the word of God. And so Mark's euangelion is just blah. It's just there. It's just a thing you read over to get to the good stuff, to get to like the casting out of demons and the calmings of the sea, this crazy mystic named Jesus. And you see, I think, like, how are we doing? How are we doing here? Can we lean in a little bit more? What do you say? Yeah, thank you, because I needed permission there. I was like, we're going to do this either way, but permission is helpful. Um, I think one possible, like one reason that we're no longer, if we were ever scandalized by the gospel is because we've taken it. And to make it maybe more understandable or, or presentable or something, we've chopped it up into these little parts that are bite-sized and digestible. And it goes something like this. Jesus Christ died on the cross to forgive me of my sins. And if I believe in him, uh, I will be saved, this is important, by grace through faith alone, and then I will be with Jesus in eternity. Now, is this true? Yeah, you bet your bottom dollar. Like, yeah, this is, like, abso-stinking, this is true. But this, like, this streamlined presentation, what it does is it leaves huge chunks of the story on the cutting room floor. It leaves Jesus' deeds, his words, his, his, like his resurrection as direct intervention into human history. It leaves all of this here. And, and listen, I'm not, like, I'm not here to diminish or poke fun at, at this framework for the gospel. This is the very thing that woke me up to new life 
in Christ. It's the very thing that, like, I didn't even know sin was a thing before this. It, it left me exposed. Like, literally, it's me sitting at a cafeteria lunch table between my sophomore and junior year of my undergrad with a guy. He's got, uh, like, a track, and he's like, this is not a sexy way of doing the God. Like, this is just, he's got his bridge diagram. There's me. There's the, uh, the God. There's the, he's like drawing it out. And something in my heart is like, yeah, let's do this. Let's do this Jesus thing. But I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know. And like, it, no doubt, it is, it is a sizable thing to consider eternal realities. Like, that's a big deal. But, but for me, and I'm not, I don't want to map this onto your experience, but for me, like when the gospel was reduced to security beyond the grave, I had this really good vision for out there. I had this really good vision for heaven, but I didn't have a good vision for earth. I didn't have a vision of a gospel that says it's heaven coming to invade earth so that God can dwell with his people. It was for me to get out of here because this was all a mess. Granted, I was the one who's part of the mess. See, so... So... So what do we do with the rest of this verse? By the way, that was the all introduction. <laughs> that was one word. So now what do we do with the rest of this verse? And what blows me away about this one verse is not like the placement of euangelion within the verse itself. It's the whole thing together. It's, each, it's that each phrase, it, it's drawing upon these massive storylines and it's collecting it together. So Mark, he looks back to the beginning in, in Eden in Genesis 1 and he starts pulling that closer. And then he looks to the whole scope. It's three quarters of your Bible. It's called the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. And he looks there at the promises that are given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he draws those in. And then he looks to this current circumstance of Rome and their oppression of people and he looks to that and he draws that in and then he hangs them all upon Jesus' shoulders. And he says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And some of your translations might even read Jesus, Messiah. And so to see how these stories converge, uh, we're just going to unpack this phrase by phrase. So this is storyline one. This is Eden. So for my note takers, that was for you. First, Eden, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is literary genius, and we may not recognize it as such, but in one word, Mark transports us back to the creation account. He brings us all the way back to page one of our Bibles. And if, if you're not familiar with the Bible, this is what it says. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning. And when, this, when the Hebrew language is, is dying out and they're starting to translate uh, the Hebrew Bible into this Greek Bible, the same word in Genesis 1 for beginning that's used is the same word that Mark is going to use in, in Mark 1.1. It's this giant, like, neon sign pointing back that somehow this Jesus is caught up in the story of new creation. And he's not, like, Mark's not like, okay, I'll just put that in this insipid and we're good to go. He's going to litter all these little hyperlinks throughout the gospel according to Mark. If you don't believe me, like, if you think I'm just making this stuff up, just jump down with me uh, to verse 9. And this is, this is what it says. 
In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. So do your best, put on your sandals and get your, your Hebrew imagination intact. When is the last time that we saw the spirit hovering over waters? Well, if you're a good Jewish person, you're saying, I got it. It's Genesis 1. It's, it's, it's bad. It's, come on, I see what you're doing, Mark. This is, this is the literary genius. This is a if you have ears kind of a moment that the spirit is hovering over the waters. And this will be up on the screen. You don't have to flip there. But this is what it says in Genesis 1, 2. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. It's these chaotic, swirly waters. And where does the spirit of God show up? He shows up there. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. There's a rabbi named Rashi who will later come along and he'll, he'll say the very same thing that Mark says. That the, that the spirit was hovering like a dove over the face of the waters. This just goes on and on, one story after another. Mark is saying that there's more to be had with this Jesus. That it's not just a new beginning, that, that the inauguration of new creation is breaking in through Jesus, but it's also Jesus Christ, or as some of your translations might have, Jesus Messiah. And this is storyline two. And so just to clear this up, because you'll be, uh, you may be surprised that this is actually a, a common thing, Christ is not Jesus' last name. So you're not going to go to a dinner party, Jesus miraculously, miraculously shows up, and you go, hey, I'm a comic man, and then it's, ah, yes, I'm Jesus Christ. It's not, that's not the framework. Christ is a royal title. And Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. If you want to get real Hebrew with it, it's Mashiach. Yeah, spit a little. Uh, and this, this, is, this royal title, it literally means the one dipped in oil. And the people who were dipped in oil, that's uh, not like fried chicken kind of oil. It's like this is an anointing thing. Uh, and so the ones who were dipped in oil, these would be the kings and the priests. So these would be the people who were the representatives of the people of Israel. And then they would be the representatives for the people of Israel to God and God to the people. These are significant figures in the nation. This is like presidential status. And this Christ term, this Messiah, this is something that these kind of wacky guys in the Old Testament are going to point to this hope that there's going to be this Messiah that comes and it's going to be, he's going to be God's representation to humanity, that renewal is breaking in. And this is the title that Mark hangs upon Jesus' shoulders. This, is, this Jesus is the Christ. And Mark doesn't just stop there in the insipid. Immediately following verse 1, he's going to quote two Hebrew prophets. He's going to quote this guy Malachi and he's going to quote this guy Isaiah. And they are these bookends like, we're just having a total nerd out moment here, by the way, um, if you'll allow it. So Malachi is the end of the prophets, and Isaiah is the beginning. In other words, Mark is saying that the whole thing, all of the hope of Israel is caught up in Jesus. From, from Genesis to Malachi, from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to the kings and David and the pay, like all of these things to the prophets, Jesus is the apex of the story. And that's what this title does when it's given to Jesus, that he is the Christ. Or, or as another like, scholar puts it, the gospel 
is the saving, forgiving story of Jesus as the completion of Israel's story. So Jesus, he, he doesn't just inaugurate this story of new creation and invite us to participate. He draws Israel's story to its climax, but he does so in this very unique way. And this is where it starts to get even weird for Mark's audience, these Greek people in a Roman empire. He does so as the son of God. This is storyline three. And if you're anything like me, uh, when I hear this term son of God, it's, it really smacks of religious talk. And it, it should, like in the Old Testament, son of God is, is something that points to the Messiah. But in Mark's day, it would be much more widely known as connected to the Caesars. And just recall uh, like Caesar's birthday card. It's, and since the birthday of the God Augustus was the beginning of the good tidings for the world. Now, who's the God in the, the framework of the Roman Empire? Who's the God? It's Caesar. Like a, a, in, the Roman, in the Roman Empire, Caesar is the mediator. He's the go-between. He is the bridge between humanity and the divine. And it's this, this story is so entrenched in their culture that they have it on their currency. It's on their money. And there'd be this inscription, Divius Filius. Anybody who knows Latin in here? No. Anybody? Okay. Just son of God. Go figure. On their money, they're looking at an embossed picture of Caesar Augustus that says, son of God. And so into this story, Mark says, actually, Jesus. Jesus is, is the, the true son of God. And so with this quiet rumble, Mark just begins to shake Rome's foundation stories. He's making this claim that Jesus is the true Son of God. And, and let's just be clear, making a claim that's, that Jesus is the Son of God is no problem if nobody else is making that claim. It's no problem if there's no one on the throne in Rome, but the problem is that there is a Caesar. And so for Jesus to make that claim would be like for any one of you to, who, who's of an eligible age uh, to go and then just on YouTube start broadcasting that, that a, new, a new nation has arrived. It's arrived in the name of Jim. I am now, and so Jim is going to go on YouTube. Sorry, Jim, this is just off the cuff. Jim is going to get on YouTube and he's going to say the, the new nation starts in Des Moines. And it's going to be a nation of peace. The outsiders are going to be welcomed in. And whatever's going on now, whatever mess or however you might think about the political landscape, whatever mess is going on right now, that age is dying away. And a new one is rising. That's like, I don't know what would happen to Jim. They'd probably just, YouTube would probably just like block it. But um, maybe it goes viral and it's not just on that platform. It's on all the news outlets because they need something to catch our attention with. And and it just is like, what is happening? And this groundswell begins to build. This is what's going on. That's, that's the, the, the situation it, with which Mark is making this claim. See, this, this gospel, it's not just some like religious cliche. Um, it's saying that Rome and the superpowers that be, whoever they may be, um, that there's something new coming that it's not a way of corruption, it's not peace by way of the sword, it's actually peace of a totally different kind. It's peace that's willing to give its life. This is, this is a dangerous gospel. 
And this wasn't what I heard at that cafeteria table. I didn't hear the promises of new creation. I didn't hear the promises being fulfilled to Israel. I didn't hear that oppression was being thrown off. In fact, I'm like a white dude from Southern California. Like, I'm not the one being oppressed. So that wasn't, that wasn't there. For me, it was, it was very much this personal thing of God reckoning with my sin. My, my, uh, like my ledger was wiped clean. And so I, it was this, it's this beautiful story of, of God actually making a way forward. And it ignited in me a passion and a hope for Jesus. I was totally down for Jesus. I'm t- I am totally down for Jesus. But I, I had no framework for actually living out this new life with Christ for living empowered by the, by the Spirit. And like I would sing songs about it. I would passionately sing songs about this new life in Christ, but I wouldn't actually do anything with it. And you see, like I would want to follow Jesus, and I think what I meant is I would want to do the right Christian things, what I, I thought were the appropriate behaviors. I would want to do those things. But then what would happen is these past patterns of sin, they would rear their ugly head, and I would find myself doing the very thing that I told myself I would never do again, and I would often do it like right before I went to church. So I would come in there, and this, like, this tidal wave of guilt and shame would wash over me, and I'd be sitting there in this self-loathing, and I would be like, God, just let me have some self-loathing here right now. And like, it, but the reality of the gospel is that there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. So I, like, how, do I, how do I reckon this? How do I reconcile this tension that I'm feeling of like I'm trying to white knuckle my way to Jesus, but it seems like there's something truer here going on? And I've made this, this point again, but I, I, want, I, I want to make it again. I've made this point, but I want to make it again. The gospel of Jesus does deal definitively with our sin. Like it does meet the evil in us, around us, decisively. I think when the story stops at the cross, when it stops there, we fail to see what comes beyond it. So if you're going to read on in the rest of the gospel according to Mark, you'll, you'll see that Jesus goes on to do some pretty amazing stuff, but the stuff he does ends up getting him hung on a Roman execution rack because of this claim that a Messiah is here, that a Lord is here. If we stop at the cross and we fail to see that there's actually life beyond the cross, that Jesus actually did rise from the dead in the power. Like this is the thing that Christians stubbornly hold on to. If we fail to see that, I think we're failing to see this story of new creation that Mark's hopeful to catch us up in. I don't know if you know this, but uh, our, like our story, the story of humanity, it doesn't start in Genesis 3. It actually doesn't start with our sin. It starts on page one. It starts with God pronouncing good, 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 and at the pinnacle of creation, very good. And yet for me, the story that I, I like chose to believe and live into was it was uh, not, you're not very good news. And so I just want to stand here and the first words that we share together t- to be that, that that's actually not God's intent to pronounce that you're not very good news, that God's intent is to see restoration and renewal, not just break out in your individual heart, but to break out through his church. Like God's purpose is to be with his people. That's the whole thing. 
And there's a place that beautifully captures this. So I I don't know how this sounds for you. You can close your eyes, do whatever, but I'm gonna read this and I would just invite you to let this wash over your hearts as we kind of land the plane here. One of the, the very end of the Bible, the last pages, Revelation 21, say this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, no crying, nor pain anymore. The former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So how does the story of Eden and Israel and Rome even matter? Um, Like, what does it have to do with anything? It has everything to do with everything. Because the direction of God's church, of God's presence in the world is headed towards this. It's not us getting evacuated out of here. It's us being his presence here. And there's a hope here. There's a hope here to be had in Revelation 21 that whatever pain that you're sitting with right now, whatever frustration you're sitting with right now, whatever angst you're sitting with right now actually has resolution. But the gospel doesn't say that you're going to be evacuated from that. That's what's scandalous. What the gospel says is Kyle and Jessica and Jim And Kate, you're invited to actually be the present comfort of God's presence in the frustration, in the anger, in the pain, in the grief, in the mourning. That's what the gospel is. The gospel, we are the gospel people. That's, I mean, it's it's on t-shirts. People are wearing it. Brad, you're wearing a t-shirt that says, in Des Moines as it is in heaven. How is it going to be in Des Moines as it is in heaven? It's going to be through the church. This is the gospel. And so in one little verse, Mark invites us to see this afresh. And so I guess this little question I just want to leave us with is like, are you ready? Are you ready for that? I don't know if I am, but Jesus is here to spread the love of God abroad in our hearts. And if you say, Kyle, that sounds squishy and weak and thin, man, just sit with it. Just sit with it and dare God to spread his love abroad in your heart and see what happens. Just see what happens. The beautiful thing this morning is, I just want to invite the elders up to to serve the communion, but um, the beautiful thing is we're not just hearing words this morning. Um, These aren't just like niceties that we say to one another and over one another. These are things that we actually get to take in in the bread and the cup. We get to physically remember this. And I I would hope that as we're drawing this in, that, that we're like physically taking in the bread and the cup, that we would say, okay, Jesus is this near to my pain, that he is this close to comfort me. And so as you take the bread, as you take the cup, the invitation is to remember. But perhaps today is the first day you remember. 
So because Jesus freely gave himself over to death on our behalf, we want to remember that there's new life to be had because death does not have the final word in God's good world. This has been another episode of the Gateway Church Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.